All right, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We are in the final week of our series titled Recovering Discipleship, and it's really been a joy for me to preach uh, through this series. And each week, we've been building upon three core principles uh, that we really want to try to like, live out and establish here at All Nations when it comes to discipleship. And the first is this. Discipleship is a direction, not a destination. Okay, it's a direction, not a destination. The second principle is this. We are more than thinkers, we're lovers. Okay, we're more than thinkers, we're lovers. And this is important because you know, our culture, it, it, we make such an idol of like education. And we think if we just learn enough and teach enough and read enough that, that everything will be good. But, but what we actually realize is that it's not just the mind that needs to be renewed. It's the heart that needs to be reshaped. And so we're not just thinkers, we're lovers. And finally, uh, the way we reshape our hearts is through habits. Okay? The way that we connect what we know with what we love, it's actually through habits. We build liturgies in life. We build regular practices in life to really help shape our hearts. Now, I don't have time to unpack those ideas again in depth, uh, but if today is your first Sunday with us, you need to just go to our website, uh, scroll through our sermon series, and it's the first one in this sermon and uh, in this series, and I really unpack those three ideas like in depth, and I'd love for you to uh, check that out. This is the fifth and final sermon in this series titled, uh, and the title of this sermon is Discipleship in Work, okay? Discipleship in Work. Uh, for two weeks, we talked about the importance and role of Sunday worship in discipleship. And this was a real paradigm shift because a lot of times we think Sunday worship is like basic. This is like general, right? This is kind of like elementary. And then if you want discipleship, you got to come out on a Wednesday night. You have to come out on like on a Sunday morning or Saturday morning. And that's like real intentional, intense discipleship. But what we've been learning here throughout the series is that, no, the Lord's Day worship, Sabbath worship, this is the primary gathering of God. And this is the primary place where God is teaching us to love him and love one another. God is teaching us and building in our lives discipleship primarily here on Sundays. And that's why you don't want to miss Sundays. That's why you don't want to just be an Easter and a Christmas Christian, right? You want to come regularly and experience community here, experience worship in the presence of God. And as we do so, he's making us you know, more and more like Jesus Christ. And this is discipleship at its core. Uh, last week, we talked about the importance of discipleship in the home, okay? So as powerful as Sunday worship is, as, as primary as Sunday worship is, we also say it's not enough, okay? It's not enough because an hour and a half on Sunday, it just can't compete with an entire week of being bombarded with various messages, with being pulled in so many different directions, right? What we actually need is to cultivate and curate homes that are centered on Jesus, homes that are centered on loving God and loving one another, homes that are centered on the gospel. And so that was last week's sermon. And today I want to continue with this idea of bringing discipleship, right, out of Sunday into Monday, okay, all throughout the week and, and learning what does it mean to follow Christ and abide in Christ in our work. Now, um, we have a little bit more time in our, Sunday, uh, in our service. Uh, last service, we had like, yeah, a bunch of baby baptisms. We had prayers. We had testimonies. And so literally, we went like 10 minutes over, and I felt really bad. But we have, we have a little more latitude. Uh, would you take a quick minute, and just to one person next to you, describe your attitude towards work, okay? Just like first, it's like, how's work, right? Or how's your work? And just first thing that comes to your mind, your, your emotion, 
okay? Uh, let's take like 30 seconds and just do that with your neighbor, okay? And if you're not a worker, you can just talk about school. How do you feel about school, right? Uh, students, just share that really quick. Awesome. What phrases did you hear? Some of you might have responded, if someone says, how's work? You might say, work is work. Have you guys ever heard that or said that? Okay, very common phrase we throw around. How's work? Work is work. But it actually shows that a lot of us are pretty indifferent towards work or maybe apathetic towards it. Okay. Others would say, how's work? We'd be like, ah, oh, you know, you, just, you had to do it. Okay. You got to pay the bills. We have to support our families, and so we treat work as this, like, necessary evil in life, okay? Or we have this, like, slavish mentality. It's like, oh, my gosh, I have a 30-year mortgage. Oh, my gosh, I have kids to feed and to send to college, or I have bills to pay. And we're like, I have to work. So we have this kind of, like, slavish attitude towards it, okay? Uh, Some might say, and I was actually surprised. It was pretty lively. It seemed kind of positive in talking about work. I think you guys were lying to each other, Um, some might say they love their work, okay? And if they say that, we kind of envy them and judge them. Um, unfortunately, a lot of us might say that we actually, like, despise work. We dread it. I mean, the idea of, like, going to work tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., 7 a.m., 9 a.m., whatever it might be. You're just like, oh, it bums you out. That means the weekend's over, right? Eyes roll. You just get, t- you get tired just thinking about going back to work on Monday, right? Um, And this is an attitude many of us have. Well, the goal of today's message, as we talk about discipleship and work, my goal is not to get you to suddenly start loving your job. Um, You've probably heard that phrase, love what you do, and you'll never work a day in your life, okay? Uh, Everyone who's like over 30, 40, Rebecca, that's a lie, right? There's no such thing, right? There's no, I'm a pastor, and you would think if anyone loves what they do, right, it, it should be us, but Guys, this is this work. I get stressed, okay? I have long nights, long days. You know, there's conflict in, in church and ministry. And so uh, it's romantic. It's romantic to, to chase that dream. I want to find something where I don't have to work, but I can get paid, and I love it, and every day is so fulfilling. Okay, that is a romantic, I'm going to say pipe dream. Okay, students? It's a pipe dream. I used to tell myself as a high school student and college student, I was like, man, I can't see myself doing nine to five but I want to work and I want to get rich, but I want to travel. I want to be stress-free. I want to be, ex- you know, like, and like my description of the perfect job just didn't exist. There's no such thing, right? And my college counselor just like looked at me and laughed, right? They're like, you need to, you need to, you need to wake up. It's, it makes for a nice Instagram, but that idea, it's, it's so unhelpful, okay? So the goal for me is not to get you to like, like love your jobs, Right? Love your work. Rather, the goal of today's message is for you and I to understand the importance of work from God's perspective. It's to connect your work with your discipleship. Okay? That's what I'm trying to do today. Because brothers and sisters, what you do for 40 to 60 hours a week, it's too important to God for you to waste it. Okay? To waste it apart from him. Students and grad students, 
what you do, taking on tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, also you can work and enter into the workforce. That is too important to God for you to waste and squander away without any vision, without any commitment, without any conviction to do so for Christ and his glory. What we commit ourselves to do from our 20s well into our 60s, think about that. That's your life. You're going to be working from your 20s well into your 60s, God willing. It's too important to God for us to disconnect from our discipleship. In other words, God doesn't want you to waste your life. Okay? He doesn't want you to waste your life. And if and because work takes so much of our lives, we must not waste our work. Okay, we must not waste our work. God does not want you or I to waste our work. He has a purpose. He has a purpose for our work lives. And we desperately need to start living into this purpose right, as a reflection of our discipleship in Jesus. So the title of today's message is Discipleship and Work. We're going to consider three things. Okay, three things. We're back on track with the three. First is this, the design of work. Okay, the design of work. Second, the corruption of work. And lastly, the redemption of work. So the design, the corruption, and redemption of our work. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. I'll give you a second to turn there. If you don't have your Bibles, it's also going to go up on the screen. I'll be reading from the ESV, and may God bless the reading of his holy word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Amen. The word of the Lord. Genesis 1 to 3, it kind of tells what's known as the creation story. And in this creation story, here in Genesis chapter 1 at the end, we don't just learn about who we are, right? We learn about what we were created for. As we learn about the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, we don't just learn about how God made Adam, but we also see why. What is the vision? What was his calling? What was his purpose? What was his mission? You see, in verse 27, we are told that the humans were created in the image of God. In Latin, this is called imago Dei, okay, imago Dei. Now, this doesn't mean that humans look like God or that God looks like us, not in a physical, outward sense. What it means is that God has shared with humanity some of his attributes, some of his characteristics in finite ways. But God has done this only with humans so that we can be like him, so that we can know him, so that we can reflect him, okay? That's what it means to bear the image of God. We can be like him. We can know him. We can reflect him. And we, we actually experience image bearing in our own families. Let me give you a concrete example. You see, children bear the image of their parents all the time. Okay? Children bear the image of their parents all the time. Okay? First, physically, there is resemblance. Okay? 
First, there's physically resemblance. Um, uh, growing up, everyone used to always say, oh, yeah, you look like your mom. You look like your mom. And I used to be really offended because I'm a boy and she's a girl. And I was like, I don't want to look like a girl. But now, as I've grown up, she's way more attractive than my dad. And so I'm glad I look like my mom. Um, but if somebody asks you, like, but who are you like? Whose image do you bear? I would actually say, I'm more like my father. Okay? And when we talk about who are you like, and we talk about image bearing in the deeper sense, in the personality sense, we're actually talking about like characteristics, dispositions, temperaments, passions, right? And in so many ways, I bear the image of my father. I share in his loves. I share in his, his, his hates as well. Um, so many of the things that, that, that make him, you know, uh, you know, I think, uh, a good leader in the church. He's an elder, uh, a faithful father, a good friend. Um, you know, I, I really try to live those things out in my own life. And so we know what it's like for a, a child to resemble their parent, but we also know what it's like for a child to be like their parent, right? To bear the image of their parent. Well, as image bearers of God, God has created us to be like him. So God is love. And so what did he do with humanity? He made us lovers, okay? He made us lovers to be able to experience that and express that kind of love that God has. God is merciful and just. We know justice, even from a young, like, toddler age. Little kids, they know justice, right? Take two little kids, give one two cookies, and give the other one. It's not pretty, okay? The other one will rebel. Why? Because they know justice. He's written that on our hearts. We are created in the image of God, and so innately we know justice, we hate injustice, and we are called to practice justice and mercy towards our neighbors. That's image-bearing. God is a creator, okay? He created the universe. And what he's done is he's empowered you and I. He's empowered humanity to be creators as well, especially in culture and through work. Think of all the wonderful things we create through music. We create through technology. We create through food and so on and so forth. This is the image of God in us. This is the image of God in us. God is a creator, and he's invited us into that delight, using that creativity, using that imagination, using that power, using that ability, and creating things, okay? He's allowed us to share in that. In Genesis 1, we see that God created Adam in his image, and he gave him dominion over all of creation. Now, that word dominion, it's foreign. It sounds a little aggressive. It's a little strong, right, to dominate, right? But it actually just means that God gave Adam uh, gave humanity the power and responsibility to rule, okay? Yes, God is Lord and King of the universe, but God wanted Adam to rule in his stead over this world. This is why Adam is the one who named all the animals, right? Adam saw animals, and he saw what looked like a lion, and he called it a lion, and he saw a dog, and he called it a dog. He named these animals, and if you know anything about naming, naming represents your authority, okay? Try naming somebody else's child. It will not work, right? Only the father and the mother, right? Or the father-in-law and the mother. You know, if they're really pressing you hard, right? They'll name your kid. But that means they have authority over you. That means you submit to them, okay? But Adam had authority, and he named the animals, and he's ruling, and God gave him dominion. And in verse 28, God also commanded Adam to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, 
okay? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is called the creation mandate, okay? For mankind to fill the earth and rule over creation, but to not do so in their own way, okay? But to do so as a reflection of God, okay? That Adam and Eve, they were, they were called to rule over creation in a way that would reflect the image of God, reflecting his wisdom, his goodness, right? His grace, his power, and his authority. The cultural mandate, right, is God's design for work. It is the what you and I were created to do, why we were put on this physical earth, right? Because he wanted us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And this, actually, this model of work, it actually comes from God's example. God's example. Do you know what God was doing during these six days of creation? Okay? He was speaking creation into being. Okay? The earth, it was darkness. Right? And he said, let there be light. And he spoke it into light. The earth was formless and void. And he started creating. Right? He started creating the earth and creating the waters and the light and filling the skies and all of this stuff. He is working. And what he was doing in his work is he was modeling what it looks like for us to use our energy, our creativity, our abilities to fill the earth. Okay, this is what God was doing. He was filling the universe with creation. And it was beautiful. And it was good. You see, at the end of each day, if you read the story of Genesis, there's a benediction. You guys know what the benediction is. It's at the end when I kind of raise my hands and most of y'all close your eyes, but some of y'all look at me and we make eye contact and it's kind of awkward, right? Uh, you can do either or, but the benediction is a blessing. It's the end of the service, right? Well, at the end of each day, God gave creation a blessing. He gave, a crea- he gave creation a benediction and he said, it was good. It was good. He looked at his work after he's creating vegetation and animals and after he's creating the heavens and the stars and after he's creating man and he just says, it's good. And on the sixth day, he sees everything after Adam. He says, it was very good. It's very good. When he looked at all that he had accomplished, all that he had done, he blessed it and he delighted in it. He was proud of it. Okay, there was joy in his work. There was joy in his work over creation. Now, this is a valuable principle for us to consider because God's work is a model for our work. Here's the question. At the end of each day, at the end of each week, can you bless your work? The things that you have done, not just to earn a paycheck, okay? not just to pay for food and entertainment and meet your needs, but can you look upon your work and bless it, and say, this is good, and delight in it? Or are you in the kind of industry, or is your relationship to your job such that you despise it, or you're ashamed of it, or you're embarrassed of it, or you're indifferent towards it, okay? Maybe it's just apathy. You're like, I feel nothing towards my work, right? I only like my paycheck, right? That, that might be some of you guys, But what God has modeled for us and what he longs for us is to look over our work and bless it and to delight in it and say it is good. We see that the origin of our work comes from God himself. We see that the direction of our work comes from the cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? The purpose of our work is to reflect the work of God, the heart of God, the image of God. 
This is how God has designed work for us. But the reality is this. We've, so many of us, and probably all, we've all lost our way when it comes to work. I mean, I talk about it, you nod, but it's not realistic, okay? Most of us hate our jobs, or many. I hope most of us don't, but many do, right? We're indifferent, we're apathetic towards it. The world is full of vocations that are not good. There's so many jobs that, that are in the business of ripping people off in the business of taking advantage of less fortunate people, right? in the business of deception. Right? For many of us, work, work life feels draining rather than life-giving. Okay? And what I want to ask is why. Why is work so difficult? Why is there so much darkness in work? Okay? This leads to our second point. It's the corruption of our work. Okay? So we just read Genesis 1 we keep reading the story and we see that Genesis 2 continues the story of creation. In, in verses 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This passage is so important for us because it reminds us that God put Adam in the garden to work before the fall, okay? Work predates the fall. Work predates sin. Work predates disobedience. Before sin entered into the world, there was work. God was working. And to model that, he called Adam and Eve to work, and if the Garden of Eden is a picture of how the world was supposed to be, if, gar if the Garden of Eden is a picture of how human life was created to be, then we need to see work as part of human flourishing, not a barrier to it. You guys see that? Okay. If I ask a lot of you guys, like, man, what, what would be like an ideal life for you? What would be a picture of flourishing and goodness for you and your family? You would probably talk about like the kind of foods you would eat, the kind of home you would live in. Right? The things that you would do on your free time, you'd, you'd, you'd go travel the world. When I said, just paint me a picture of flourishing, okay? Um, most of you wouldn't talk about work. If anything, you're like, man, my job is the reason why I can't live the kind of life I want to live, okay? And we actually see work as a barrier to our flourishing, but this is where our attitudes need to change. We have such a negative and low view of work that our picture of flourishing doesn't reflect God's picture of flourishing, okay? We think the good life, the flourishing life, okay, our best life doesn't include work. For a lot of people, the ideal life would be workless, okay? Just full of recreation, entertainment, and rest. How much, how, you guys would love that. We'd love to have bank accounts that were inexhaustible, and we were just on endless vacation. You guys would love that, right? You guys would love that. Wouldn't that just be that? I just watched Crazy Rich Asians. I was like, I want to be Nick Young. I'm going to be Mike Young, right? And, and just live that like just privileged, comfortable, just like next level wealth. We think that that would be an ideal life for us. An author named Neil Postman, he wrote a powerful and informative book uh, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Okay, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it's a critique of entertainment and the postmodern culture. And in it, he has this great phrase, okay, quote, quote. This is what he writes. There is nothing wrong with entertainment. As some psychiatrist once put it, we all build castles in the air. The problems come when we try to live in them, okay? 
The problem comes when you and I try to live in the castles of the air. When we try to live like in a fantasy world, live on endless perpetual vacation, live where all of your life is about just kind of pursuing experiences that lead to happiness and temporary joy. That's when problems go, uh, when, when life goes awry. You see, that's when life gets wrecked, when we concern ourselves primarily with entertainment. It says something about us. When you and I, when the things that we're most proud of posting on Facebook and Instagram are images of our social lives, okay? as if the quality of our entertainment is a reflection of the quality of your life. How many of you guys think that? Okay. How fun, how interesting, how adventurous your life can be, that that is a reflection of the quality of your life. And that's why our social media, and, and my life, my, I'm exactly the same right? I'm not coming in here and like Instagramming my staff meeting on a Tuesday morning, right? I'm Instagramming my shabu shabu meal in Koreatown, right? Because I'm all about like just wanting to like live my best life now and, and, and want people to be like, oh, Pastor Mike's living a good life and he's entertaining, he's flourishing. But friends, brothers and sisters, right? That, that, that's not flourishing according to the scriptures. That's flourishing according to this world, Biblical flourishing is not wrapped around entertainment. It's not wrapped around temporary happiness. And this is why even the wealthiest people in the world, they experience restlessness. Even the wealthiest people in the world experience unhappiness and emptiness. Guys, that's true. Let's not be naive and think just because they're wealthy and successful and powerful that they are whole and complete because there's more to life than just eating and drinking and buying whatever makes you happy. That's not true flourishing, guys. We need to stop treating work as a means for entertainment. We need to stop treating entertainment as equivalent to flourishing or traveling and vacation and uh, vacations as equivalent to flourishing or possessions, cars, homes, luxuries as equivalent to flourishing. The Garden of Eden provides for us a vision of what flourishing truly is, of what life was meant to be like. And this includes humanity having a perfect relationship with God, humanity having a perfect relationship with one another, Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed. That was their relationship. There was no sin. There were no barriers. There weren't even clothes to separate them. They looked at one another with complete love, with complete knowledge and intimacy. That's flourishing. And the last picture of flourishing that Eden gives us is this picture of humanity being in harmony with creation. Humanity being in a right relationship with creation where we are fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Where we steward over the earth and care for the earth as in a way that reflects God, not corrupting it and killing it with our Plastic straws, as seems to be the latest rage. Something happened, though, to corrupt this vision of flourishing that Eden gives us. Adam and Eve were commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all know what happened. They ate the tree, they disobeyed, and in their sinful disobedience, something happened. It brought about death. It brought about the curse. It brought about the ruin and corruption of all of creation. Their sin made work 
a curse as well. In Genesis 3, uh, we see God's response to Adam's sin. This is what God says to Adam, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's heavy. But think about those, those, those key words. Think about those phrases God is using. Cursed is the ground because of you. This is an agricultural people, okay? Adam is primarily a farmer, and he's, 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 he's growing vegetables and fruits and trees and says, suddenly, because of his sin, this isn't easy anymore. This isn't smooth anymore. It's cursed. In pain, you're going to eat of it. You'll encounter thorns and thistles, okay? For us, those are called managers and coworkers, right? If you're a medical professional, it's called like difficult patients, right? Thorns and thistles in work. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. What God is saying is that because of our sin, our work is cursed. What God created to be good for us, what God created for us to, uh, what, to be delightful to us, and life-giving where we would end each day with a benediction where our hearts would be whole and we'd be satisfied and be, this was good. It became a curse. And rather than being life-giving, work has now become life-taking. Because of sin, work is now a toil. It's labor. It's stressful. It's difficult. This is why so many of us struggle with it. Eating bread, yes, is delicious, Right? But growing wheat, harvesting it, baking it, like kneading it and prepping it, it's by the sweat of your brow. It's difficult. It's hard work. The interesting thing for us is we live in this kind of tension. We live as a people created for Eden, but live after the fall. Okay? We were created for Eden, but we live after the fall. And, and th this is the ramifications. Because we were created to work, we all long for it. Okay, we all long for it. I know that sounds counterintuitive because some of you are like, oh, no, I don't long for work. I hate my job, right? But ask anyone who has struggled with unemployment or ask anyone who struggled with the restlessness of retirement, okay? You miss work. You want to work. My father, he's nearing retirement. He's in his early 60s now. And I ask him, Dad, what are you going to do? Are you going to retire at 65? Right? Do I need to start bankrolling you, right? Am I your, uh, your 401k, right? Um, so I'm trying to prepare as well, right? But he's like, I'm not going to retire. I was like, Dad, you know, you've been doing dry cleaning for like 38 years. You don't have to do it forever. He's like, I may not be a dry cleaner, but I'm not going to retire. None of my friends and I, we want to retire. I said, why? He says, don't retire because you'll be bored to death. He's like, there's nothing to do, right? I'm like, you can play golf. He's like, I can't play golf seven days a week, right? I was like, uh... I guess it makes sense. There's nothing to do. Now, financial stress aside, okay, people without work, they feel adrift. They feel without meaning. They feel like they lack meaning or purpose. They don't have a reason to wake up in the morning, and they struggle with, a self, with their own self-worth. Okay? Now, millennials, you guys are funny. 
okay? Because you guys really do try to like make the best of like whatever situation you're in. So a lot of millennials struggle with unemployment. So there's this new phrase, fun employment, right? Fun employment. And we're like, what is that? It's like, oh, right when you quit your job, right? And you have a little bit of money like saved up and so you're good. And so you just wake up, you sleep in every day, right? You wake up around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, go down, grab a cup of coffee at the nearest craft coffee shop, maybe get an acai bowl, right? And go hit the beach, do some yoga, hang out with your friends, call someone up for dinner, right? Get some Korean barbecue or street tacos. And get a beer, a local bar, go home, watch Netflix, do it all over again. Fun employment, right? Sounds good, right? Ask somebody who's been fun employed how it is after like three months, after six months, after a year. The fun is gone. The angst is real. The restlessness is real. The purposelessness is real. And they're tired of waking up without anything to do. They're tired of waking up without any direction. You see, there's this tension in all of us. We need to work. We long to work. We were created to work. It's a struggle when we do work, okay, we experience the curse of work when we work. So talk to somebody who's unemployed and they find a job. They're grateful. They're excited. And as soon as they start working, they're stressed and they're tired. Why? Because the work is cursed. Okay? So there's the tension. Made for Eden, living after the fall. Now let me pause with a brief qualifier. Okay? When I talk about work, we immediately think about employment. Okay? We immediately think about employment, but I think that's an oversimplification. Work is biblically best understood as reflecting the creation mandate. Okay? It means that we are, it, it, work happens when we're living our lives as image bearers of God, as creators, as rulers, as cultivators. This means that stay-at-home moms, y'all are working. Okay? Y'all are absolutely working. Okay? As you raise your children up in the Lord, as you nourish them, as you protect them, as you curate their loves, you are absolutely working. This means that a retired adult is still working as he or she volunteers in the community and extends care towards their neighbors. My mother-in-law and father-in-law, they live in this kind of retirement community in Orange County, right? And it's a beautiful thing. Her, she and her neighbors, they like grow crops. They have this little community garden and they pick the plants and they grow these vegetables and they just drop them off to one another. They always make a little extra food when they're cooking to feed one another. If anyone is sick or anyone's struggling with something, they're always meeting one another's needs. And in that way, they're cultivating community and they're working and they're not getting a paycheck, but they're working, okay? There's purpose, there's mission. They're reflecting the image of God towards one another. Working is more about contributing to the flourishing of society than it is about collecting a paycheck, okay? So uh, I just wanted to share that so that some of you guys may be like, I'm not working because you know, I'm taking care of my kids, or, or, or I'm studying, or whatever it might be, or I'm retired. Um, no, there's still ways to live a life that contributes to the flourishing of society. So if work has been corrupted and cursed because of the fall, how do we redeem it? Okay, how do we correct it? How does work become a crucial part of our discipleship? Okay, how can we recover what was lost? Okay, how can we recover what was lost in Eden? The answer is through the work of Jesus Christ. Just as all creation was cursed as a result of Adam's disobedience, all creation will be redeemed as a result of Christ's obedience. Okay? This is the relationship with, between Adam and Jesus. Jesus is the greater Adam. 
Jesus is the one who corrects, okay, all of Adam's sins and failures. And we see this as Paul's describing Romans 8, okay, Romans 8. This is what Paul writes. He says, verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see that? This is what happened to creation. It fell. It became corrupt, right? It was in bondage to sin. And creation is yearning and longing for a redeemer, for someone to come and set it free from the curse of sin and death. And Jesus Christ is that redeemer, the redeemer not only of our own hearts and our souls, he's the redeemer of the entire world. And that is the story of the gospel. See, friends, the gospel is not just Jesus loves you and died for you. That's an essential part of the gospel. But the, the completeness, the whole picture of the gospel, it's the narrative from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Okay, as you move from Genesis to Revelation, that's the narrative. That's the story of God. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. The gospel is not just a single event of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. The hope of the gospel also includes Jesus, who's going to return in victory. Jesus, who's going to reveal the fullness of God once again to us. He's going to come and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is going to set creation free from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus is going to lift the curse over creation and renew creation to its Edenic form. What this means for us is that Jesus is going to fix our work. He's going to redeem our work, that he can and will redeem our work. It's the story of God. It's in the story of God that our stories can be redeemed. And like I shared, work takes up too much of your story. Work takes up too much of your energy, too much of your resources for you just to kind of like shove it down the side and say, I'm going to really live for God at church on Sunday. I'm going to really live for God and the gospel a couple days or weeks out of the year as I go on a mission trip or a couple retreats or when I go to small group, right? That's too little, brothers and sisters. Jesus is Lord of all of our lives. Every moment, every opportunity is a moment of discipleship for us to live out our identities as image bearers of God and work takes up too much of your life. Not to be intentional about your discipleship. So until Christ returns, our work is to bear his name. Our work is to reflect his image and do it all for his glory. Yes, because of sin, our work is not what it should be. Yes, because of sin, there's a lot of darkness and pain and stress and toiling in our work, but this is why your workplaces need the gospel. This is why your workplaces need discipleship and a Christian witness so that you and I can show the world how things are supposed to be, okay? Sin has broken and corrupted this world. Sin has brought a curse into every facet of life in our lives. What the gospel does is give us hope and paint a picture again of how things are supposed to be when Jesus is Lord. 
when sin has been dealt with, when the glory of God has been manifest. That's what Christians, that's why we need to be in the workplaces as salt and light. We cannot divorce our faith. We cannot divorce our discipleship from the workplace. Alvin Plantinga, uh, the renowned uh, philosopher at the University of Notre Dame, he gave an address titled Advice to Christian Philosophers. Advice to Christian Philosophers. And he stated this. The quote's going to go up on the screen. He said, we who are Christians and propose to be philosophers must not rest content with being philosophers who happen incidentally to be Christians. We must strive to be Christian philosophers. We must therefore pursue our projects with integrity, independence, and Christian boldness. Amen. Do you get that? I deeply appreciate what Dr. Planigo is saying. And I believe they apply to all of our disciplines today. As you think about your work, or as you're a student, right, studying and preparing and training to eventually enter into the workplace, what will you be? An engineer who happens to be Christian and goes to church on Sundays? Or will you be a Christian engineer doing your job with integrity, with dignity, with passion, with creativity for his glory? Will you be a lawyer or a doctor who just happens to be Christian? Or will you be a Christian lawyer understanding that Jesus makes a difference for your view of justice on how you defend your clients on how you care for those who are hurting, those who are in need. Does Jesus make a difference? And I want to tell you that, that in this day and age, we want to be just professionals who happen to be Christian. This is no more evident than in, with artists. You ask any artist, Fidim, Otis, right, a musician, be like, hey, do you want to be a Christian artist? They're like, no way. Because to them, there's a stereotype that Christian art is second rate. The Christian art, Christian music is shoddy and lame. Friends, I want to tell you that to be a Christian artist doesn't mean that everything you do ends up in a family Christian bookstore, okay? That's not Christian art. One of the greatest Christian artists that ever walked this earth was Johann Sebastian Bach. And he used his music and his gifts and his abilities and his ingenuity to write these, 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 these masterpieces. And at the end, he wasn't ashamed or like sheepish about his faith. He wrote the acronym SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. All for the glory of God. He was a Christian musician, not a musician who happened to be Christian. Brothers and sisters, will you and I, will you, do we have the boldness do we have the vision? Do we have the courage to even pursue this? What does it mean to be a Christian businessman? What does it mean to be a, a Christian um, chef or in the, in the food industry or an accountant or an educator? Brothers and sisters, we need to truly consider what difference Jesus makes when he's lording over our lives, when we are following him into our workplaces. You see, our workplaces need the gospel. They need Jesus. When you encounter difficult patients at work, I believe the Christian response is set apart. When we witness abuse or injustice in the workplaces, I believe the Christian response is different. 
not to look the other way, not to just preserve and think about the financial success of the company. I believe the Christian is, is bound, bound by God, bound by his allegiance to Christ to promote mercy and justice and stand for truth. Jesus makes a difference, does he not? Would you consider the biblical vision of faith and work? Okay. Not for Christ to be incidental to your identity at work, but for Christ to be central, for Christ to be primary, and for you to bear that with pride. Not because you think you're better than everyone, but because you understand that your workplace is a mission field. Brothers and sisters, where else do you encounter and interact with so many non-Christians? Okay, It's not here at church. It's not in your own homes, or maybe, but hopefully not, probably not, okay? You're, the opportunities you have in your schools and in your workplaces to be salt and light for the glory of God, would you steward over that with intentionality and purpose? And once again, it's not by going around to everyone and saying, do you know Jesus? Do you wanna come to church, right? And then always showing up late and doing poor work. That is not work in faith, okay? Like planning has said, there's boldness, there's integrity, there's independence, there's excellence. The men and women who have lived this out, they change the world. Whether you're a mathematician like Blaise Pascal, whether you're a philosopher and political theorist like John Locke, okay, our constitution, our government was shaped by his political theory. Okay. Or whether you have the leadership and character of Abraham Lincoln. These men weren't just incidental in their discipleship and work. No, Jesus led them. He shaped how they worked. He shaped the decisions that they made. He shaped what they did. Throughout the series, we've been reminded that we are what we love. Okay? You and I, we are what we love, not just what we think. Well, in our work, we make what we love. Okay? You make what you love. May our work reflect our love for Christ, all for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you are a God who has a vision and a purpose for all of our lives, not just Sunday morning for 90 minutes, but that you are a God who can be trusted, you are a God who can be followed in every moment of every day. And Lord, would you teach us what this looks like? Would you lead us to abide in you at home, to abide in you in the workplace? And Father, I wanna pray for um, any brothers or sisters here who, who might be struggling with their current work, whether it's a decision of integrity, whether it's, it's a reconsideration of the actual work that they do, Father, would you give them grace? Would you give them courage? Would you give them conviction that you want their work to reflect your image and your glory? Would you teach us what this means and would you lead us in joy? Lead us in joy to be able to bless each day just as you did, as good, as delightful, as life-giving. May we model our work after yours. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.